Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Hey, y'all, go ahead and open your Bibles with me, please, to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we're in the seventh book of the Bible, seventh book of the Old Testament. You will probably need some form of a Bible today because we've had some computer demons, as you can see. And they are very active among us. We must rebuke them at all costs. But so just in case we lose it, um, I don't think we will, but just in case, it's good to have a Bible in front of you. I want you to think back. From when I want to ask you a question. I want you to think back across your life. I want to see if you can identify the moment or moments in your life when you lost your childhood imagination. Can you remember those times or those places when the world wasn't quite as colorful and vivid and full of sights and sounds as it once was. You know, like when the stars in the sky were no longer pinholes in a vast, dark canvas allowing the eternal light behind them to shine through. When the moon was no longer God's fingernail. Or when the thunder during the rainstorm was no longer angels dancing in the clouds above you. When the lightning was no longer their camera flashes at their parties as they took pictures of one another. Can you remember when you realized that the ground below you was actually not lava that you had to avoid at all costs on the playground? Or when the creek in the backyard was not that strategic river outpost that you had to defend from invading enemies? Can you remember when the sounds of the of the cars and the trucks that you played with no longer sounded like the deafening engines in your mind, but instead just sounded like your two pathetic lips buzzing together. Can you remember when the mounds that you had built of rocks and dirt were no longer inhabited by fairies? Or when your stuffed animals no longer talked back to you? Or when you realized that it was actually impossible to become a princess and that you weren't a princess after all, it's pretty tragic when you think about what we lose when we lose our childhood imagination. And I don't know what happens. I don't know when the world becomes just a nice scenic backdrop to all the stuff we have to get done and no longer becomes this place filled with wonder and awe, with adventure, awaiting every corner that we turn. I don't know what happens between 5 and 15 that that our minds change in that way. But for those of you who have children or grandchildren, nieces or nephews, cousins, whatever the case may be, we get a chance through our children to relive that, don't we? I have a four-year-old daughter named Kennedy and an 18-month-old son named Judah. And you can tell between our children that I entered into an Old Testament program. <laughs> Kennedy is a very nice kind of modern name. Judah is just one step away from Jedediah. It's very close. <laughs> but... Um, my daughter especially is kind of in the throes of her imaginative spirit right now. Her favorite activity is to go outside and to find whatever creatures we can find in the backyard. And all of them are fair game to be quarantined in our house for 24-hour periods as long as I'm the one catching them, right? Daddy, you get this spider. Okay, great. Love to. So, so my daughter's always kind of imagining the world in different ways. And especially over the last eight months or so, she's been building a pet shop in her room and the pet shop is a real pet shop to her. It's not imaginary. And it's not just a collection of toys in a corner. It's instead like very strategically placed. All the animals are gathered in very specific places. You can see it here. Um, 
And she's got like old boxes and trash. You see the cones? Those are the wall of the pet shop. She's got lip, lip gloss laid out as a wall to the pet shop. She's got like old wrappers in there that the animals eat from. She's got flyers on how to take care of birds that we got at the pet store. It's very intentional to her. She's got like an old turtle shell that she found in the front yard that I'm pretty sure has like six forms of E. coli on it. <laughs> but she doesn't care. She continues to play with it. And it's all very real to her. And my wife, a couple weeks ago when she was away, when uh, Kennedy was away playing with a friend, my wife decided to kind of clean up a little bit, to kind of do what she could to tidy up all the garbage that we see as garbage, but that she sees as very integral parts of the, of the pet shop. And Kennedy came home, and she didn't just like get a little bit worried. She's just kind of like anxiety set in. She's like, Mommy, my pet shop doesn't have a wall anymore. What have you done to it? It was as if my wife had hired a demolition crew to ruin her entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, it was, she was so shaken because her imagination is so alive right now to see things as real that aren't necessarily real. And we see this in our children, that spark of imagination. And we just want to take our hands and put it around it to protect it as long as we can. It will inevitably go out, won't it? But we want to do everything we can to cherish it and protect it as long as we can. This is the reason that we are willing to go to that swampland in Orlando with a castle in the middle of it. You know, that nightmare place that is so overwhelmingly hot, like heat stroke hot, and is, uh, you know, you're willing to stand in line for 90 minutes to see moving cardboard. This is, we're willing to do that because while we're there, like our imaginations come alive again, don't they? For those few hours, we're like, wow, it really is a small world after all. This is amazing. Like, so we, we kind of, we get to relive our childhood moments through Disney World. This is why we enjoy going to these places despite how hot and miserable and expensive they can often be. Well, I wonder... In fact, I believe that the life of faith is only one small step removed from that fully imaginative world of a child. You know, Jesus tells us that unless we have faith like a child, we can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think he means simply that we are supposed to trust God with everything that we have, although that's a part of it. I think he's talking about a child's willingness to see and believe anything in the world despite whatever their eyes see around them. It's a willingness to engage the world with a new vision, with no limits. It's a willingness to see all kinds of wonder and just the most ordinary things. James Whitehead, who's a theologian at Loyola University in Chicago, he says that faith is the enduring ability to imagine life in a different way. Faith is the enduring ability to imagine life in a different way. Faith is a childlike imagination. And, you know, it's really easy to cultivate that imagination in the 70 or so minutes that we have here week to week, isn't it? When we're singing of God's love, when we're interacting with one another, when we hear sermons, when we read the Bible, it's very easy to believe in a world where, you know, seas are parted and where people escape from lion's dens unscathed and where people are healed, where there are resurrected bodies walking around. It's easy to live in that kind of a world in our time together. And after we leave here today, it'll probably persist maybe through dinner, that kind of faith boost that you get from being here this morning. But inevitably, Monday comes, and Monday brings with it all these things that choke out that faith imagination in us. Monday's so dull, isn't it? Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. I've heard that somewhere. But like, there's a way in which Monday kind of chokes that imagination out of our minds. And I want us to see this morning, as we conclude our three-week series entitled The Great Adventure, I want us to talk about what it means to dare to believe in the calling that God has placed upon each of us. Through this series, we've been looking at biblical figures that 
are complex, they're complicated, but they're not extraordinary people. It's not like the typical Bible heroes that you think of that have all these kind of superpowers, but they're very ordinary people that God takes along on these great adventures, hence the name, simply because they're willing to believe something that they don't see right in front of them. God is calling us to a life in which we can begin to see under the surface of the ordinary God's extraordinary power working and that we might begin to believe that our hands, whatever is in them, might be usable to transform the world for eternity. So we're talking about what it means to dare to believe, and we're in Judges chapter 6 today. We're going to be looking at the story of Gideon, and before we read the text, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop of what is going on in the book of Judges. The book of Judges traces the history from immediately after the death of Joshua. Joshua succeeded Moses as leader of Israel. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. They're settled in the land. They're obedient. But after Joshua dies, they immediately become disobedient. And Judges traces their history from that moment all the way up to Samuel, who's the judge that ends up uh, anointing the first king, Saul, over Israel. And Judges is a really entertaining read. I mean, if there's any, it's probably the most entertaining read you'll find in all of Scripture, quite honestly. I remember reading it a couple years ago and thinking, man, this could be a really good movie. And I don't mean like a cheesy Christian movie. I mean like a really good movie with Hollywood kind of putting all of its resources there because there's a lot of battles and irony and complexity. There's a lot of humor. There's even bathroom humor in Judges. You can read it in Judges 3 with Ehud. It's really, that's in the Bible. That's awesome. So, um, but the book of Judges is a really entertaining read, and it's structured in a very specific way. Judges 2 tells us that this time in Israel's life was filled with disobedience. That's probably why it's so entertaining is because it's got all the things that we're entertained by. But it's filled with disobedience. The Israelites didn't expel the Canaanites out of the land that they were supposed to expel. And as a result, the Canaanites are living among them. And as they're living among them, their gods are having a strong influence upon Israel. Such that here's the cycle that would happen. This is what Judges 2 tells us, is that Israel will begin to worship these other gods. And as they begin to worship these other gods, then God would punish Israel for their disobedience and by making them subject to an oppressive people. Israel would then cry out to God in the midst of their helplessness. God would have compassion, raise up a judge to overthrow the armies that were defeating them. And then Israel would be happy and healthy for many years to come until again, well, of course, they would worship the gods and the cycle would start all over again. A cycle of sin, punishment, repentance, and restoration over and over again. Well, it's beginning to restart here in Judges chapter 6. God has just delivered the Israelites from the Canaanites through Deborah's hand in Judges 4 and 5. And here we are with Gideon in Judges 6. We're going to read a lot of text today, so uh, be patient with me. It's going to be kind of stop and starty as well. We're going to kind of interrupt some thoughts as we read it. But starting in verse 1, this is what the Bible says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are kind of an ambiguous people in Scripture. Moses is married to a Midianite. That's a good thing. But the Midianites also attack them in Numbers 25 and 31, cause them to be idolatrous. So Midianites are desert people that reside to the southeast of Israel. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. So now the Midianites have friends. Amalekites, bad guys in Scripture. Verse 4. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. 
They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The word for impoverished means to make small. They made Israel so small that they cry out to God. So this is not that just that Israel is being oppressed, but instead they're being invaded. They're refugees in their own land. They're losing land. They're losing cattle, which means they're losing their food source. They can't even eat. And this hasn't gone on for a couple months. This has gone on for seven years. You can imagine the helplessness that they're experiencing. Verse 7, when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not Listen to me. Now, I think this moment is important. It's easy to pass over it and jump straight to Gideon, but I think this moment is important because it shows us that there isn't a moment in our lives when we are suffering because of some sin in our lives that God does not also make clear to us what that sin is that's causing the suffering. That is, God is not playing some kind of smoke and mirrors game with us that should there be suffering in our lives caused by our own disobedience, that if we're listening to the voice of God, God won't also say, this is what you're doing wrong, let's make it right together. And I think this, this speaks against, you know, those church people, not in this service, in the 10 o'clock service, but those church people <laughs> that say things like, you know, all suffering is caused by some form of sin or some kind of lack of faith. That person, why is that person sick? Oh, well, because there's sin in their life or they just don't believe God enough, right? Well, that's, that's not the case here at all. God speaks very clearly when there's sin. And sometimes, oftentimes, suffering happens not because of any sin, but just because life happens. So all those church people can shut their mouths. So um, verse, I know, and I mean it. I'm like a prophet today. All right, verse 11. <laughs> Thank you, Blake. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Skipping over to verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. It's always good news from God, isn't it? You're not going to die. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abias rites. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? All right, so I just want to kind of walk through verse 11 and following together milk it for all it's worth, and to kind of take two general observations about what this text teaches us about belief specifically. And the first is this, daring to believe emerges from the broken places of our lives. Daring to believe emerges from the broken places of our lives. 
It will be there one day. I prophetically speak it now. All right, so starting in verse 11, let's just walk slowly through this text together. First of all, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. Now, anytime, if you're a good Old Testament reader, you know that anytime there's an oak tree, then something significant is about to happen. Oak trees in the Old Testament are often places where God meets and calls people. Now, we see the angel of the Lord comes and sits down under the tree and just kind of takes in the scenery, begins to observe Gideon from afar. And Gideon doesn't necessarily recognize that it's an angel at first. In fact, later he's going to ask for a sign for, of proof that he has been speaking to an angel all along, which shows to us that God, when God calls to us, that God doesn't come with some kind of great thunderous cloud to kind of tell us what God is doing, but instead God comes to us in very subtle and hidden ways. God comes to speak to us in things that are very mundane and ordinary, ways that we could often miss God's voice if we're not paying careful attention. God instead wants to kind of invite us into a little bit of a dialogue before he's just going to kind of lay the call upon our lives. So God speaks to us very subtly. The angel of the Lord is there, and then he's at the place where his son, talking about Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I don't know how many agricultural specialists we have here, but for those of you who aren't, threshing wheat refers to the process where after you have harvested the wheat, you take the stalks of wheat to the threshing floor, aptly named, and there at the threshing floor, which is a big open space with a lot of wind, they will take the wheat, lay it on the ground, and beat it to death. I mean, they'll take stone and wood and even cattle and trample it as a means of separating the stalks from the heads of wheat. And then after this threshing is done, they'll winnow it, which refers to taking it and throwing it in the air, and the wind on the hill will blow the chaff away, the stalks, and you're left with the heavier heads of grain that just fall at your feet, and that's what you can use to make food with. So ideally, this is done on a big, open, windy plain, but instead... Look where Gideon is doing it. He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Highly inconvenient. There's nothing convenient about making your food in a wine press. Wine press is very small. There's no wind there. But because of the situation that Gideon has, is facing and his people are facing, Gideon has resigned himself to the fact that this could be my life for, for the rest of my life, that I could be having to make food in this way for the rest of my life. It's no longer going to be convenient for me. He's, he's wrapped his entire life around the suffering that's been placed in his world. And I wonder if many of us are a lot like Gideon, that there are those problems, those sufferings, those um, issues that have taken place in our life, that when they first entered into our world, we were very optimistic about what God might do to get rid of them, right? We had all this faith and all this gusto. We had prayer teams, and we were believing God to change all of this. And then after about seven years of it, we begin to be like Gideon, and we've resigned ourselves to it. And it's become this kind of object that sits in the middle of our lives that we're having to now reorient all our routines, all our thought processes all of our actions around so that we can just keep on living. It reminds me of kind of objects in my house. So like when uh, we get back from vacation, we'll take the suitcases, put them in the bedrooms, and over about a day or two, we'll unpack the suitcases. And then if I'm a good proactive husband, I'll put the suitcases away in storage immediately. But I'm not. So oftentimes, um, my wife will say, hey, put the suitcases away. I'm like, I'll do, it this, I'll do it tonight. But she won't do it because it's 
places that she can't easily get to. And so um, she just kind of puts them off to the side. Well, they, they'll sit there for like six weeks, six months maybe, and they become a part of the furniture of the room, you know, something you have to avoid at all costs in the middle of the night. You're like, I think it's three paces from the bed. Yes, it is. I win. So, I mean, they, they become a part of the fabric of our lives. And then after a little while, I'll be a good, obedient husband and I'll put the suitcases away. And it's like, man, where did all this space come from? We have so much more room for activities. And so I think that's kind of the way that this text shows me the problems in our lives enter our world. Like they they sit there as an object in the middle of our world and we've resigned ourselves to them. We have anxieties in our hearts, in our minds that for a while we thought we could get rid of for the first little bit that we had them, but now we just think they're a part of who we are and we've just said, you know what, I'm never going to be a person that can go to those places or do those things or see those things because if I do, it's going to trigger something in me that I can't control. I just will avoid all of these things the rest of my life. Or we have those relationships with people, friends, coworkers, family, that for all intents and purposes are abusive. They speak negatively to us. They're emotionally abusive, whatever the case may be. And instead of seeing freedom from that in our world, we've become experts at walking on the eggshells without breaking them. We've kind of learned to kind of walk through the minefield without triggering any of the mines. Or more commonly, we, we work in jobs that we hate. We're completely unfulfilled. We feel like we're not using any of the things that God has called us to. And we've had dreams for our lives. We thought dreams that God had called us to. And they didn't come to fruition, and it's been a long time. And so here we are, and we sit like Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press, wondering, is God ever going to change this? Or I guess I'm going to work this the rest of my life and never find anything fulfilling for myself. And hear me, the angel of the Lord is in this room this morning, and he is approaching you in this moment, and he is saying the same thing to you that he said to Gideon. He's saying that the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior, and you don't have to live this way. The problems that you've resigned yourself to in your world, God has a fuller life for you. God has an abundant life for you that he is beckoning you into. You don't have to to live like this anymore. Today is the day of your calling to see the world differently. You don't have to thresh wheat in a wine press. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now Gideon, he has no combat training whatsoever. Gideon's about as good a fighter as I am, which is pretty poor. He um, has no leadership skills. He hasn't been trained But God tells him that he is a mighty warrior. God speaks over him an identity that he doesn't even see in himself. That's the way that God speaks over you today. He sees you in ways that you can't even imagine for yourself. You know how God sees you as a strong person. God doesn't see you as someone that's kind of pathetic and weak. He's got to put his arm around. He's like, come on, buddy. Let's just go to the park together. (laughs) You know, that's not the way that God sees you. God sees you as strong. And God speaks over you an identity that is encouraging for the present tense and inspiring for the future tense. Gideon, he won't be able to become a mighty warrior until much later in his story. In fact, he's kind of a cowardly warrior for the first few chapters. But God has given him an identity that he can become over time. Time through God's help. It's like a child that wears a coat that's 10 times too big for them. But over time, they will grow into it. God is speaking over you a strong identity today, seeing you as one who is able enough, talented enough 
to overcome the problems that you're facing. But look how Gideon responds in verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's reply is kind of harsh, isn't it? Gideon in this moment, he's bordering on agnosticism. He's bordering on atheism. But he's being very honest about his problems with God, isn't he? I think a lot of times that we feel like in our interaction with other people, interaction with God, that we have to put on this facade of faith. That we have to kind of parade our belief around, like, I trust God in every moment and I'm never afraid, right? But God instead invites us into very honest communication with him. That the doubts that we want to deny in our own hearts are the same doubts that God sees before we even confess them to him. God sees us as fully human before him, and he wants us to be fully vulnerable before him. God is inviting us to lay all our doubts out before him, to be just like the psalmist in Psalm 22 or our Savior on the cross, and to ask him, why have you forsaken me? Those are blasphemous, even uh, troublesome thoughts for, even for us to speak, but God wants us to be honest about them. You see, belief doesn't emerge from denying our doubts. Belief comes from owning our doubts and finding still that God is in the midst of them. We have to start owning our broken places, owning those doubtful places, and finding that belief can even emerge there as well. So Gideon's asking all these theological questions. If God is good, then why is all this happening? Verse 14, the Lord turned to him. Okay, so now the angel has become God. And it's always kind of a terrifying thing when God makes eye contact with you. you know? So the Lord turns to him, very intentional, and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So Gideon wants to have this theological debate about whether God is good or not based on his experiences. And God says, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. <laughs> Instead, I'm going to call you to resolve the problems that you're complaining to me about. See, oftentimes God comes to us and he says, the very things that you're despairing about before me are the same things that I see to be your destiny in me, things your destiny to transform in me. The same suffering that's causing us to question God on a daily basis, to question if God is real, to question if God is with us, is the same suffering that God has now called us to transform in his name. God is calling us to be the answer to our own and to other people's prayers. It's as if in the same moment when we say, God, fix this, God turns toward us and says, I'm calling you to fix it with my help. It's, God wants us to be the solution to our own problems in that way. And I think this is uh, really beautiful because it shows us that the call of God emerges from those broken places of our lives, that we are each uniquely broken, aren't we? We each have problems that we face that no other person faces uniquely as we do. And God is saying, those same broken places that you feel like are leading you away from me are the things that I'm going to use to bring you back to me, the things I'm going to use to uh, show you what I can do through you in those situations. So maybe you have a wayward child that you're crawling, calling out to God about, they're making unhealthy decisions, unhealthy choices. Well, God is saying to you in that moment, he's saying, I'm call those things you're crying out to me about, I'm calling you to be my agent of reconciliation and hope and unconditional love and healing to them. In the same moment that we're calling out to God about the sickness of a loved one, God's saying, I want you to be my healing hands toward them, my hands of comfort, my hands of uh, 
presence, my hands that show them that I will never leave them even in their time of need. In that same moment that we're saying, God, why don't you do something about this poor family that's suffering? God's saying, I've given you the means to help them. I want you to be the answer to their prayer. Our calling emerges from the broken places of our lives. So maybe we could summarize it this way. The life of faith isn't one of holding our brokenness at a distance, but embracing it as the seedbed for God's extraordinary call. Believing God is terrifying precisely because it forces us to acknowledge that we are important enough to be an answer to another's prayers. What breaks your heart? God's saying that's exactly the place that I'm calling you to transform. First observation, daring to believe emerges from the broken places of our lives. The second observation and the final observation of the day is that uh, belief in God's call requires nothing more than what we already have. Belief in God's call requires nothing more than what we already have. After Gideon's complaint to God, what does God say? The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. In Hebrew, this your strength. This implying that it's immediately in Gideon's hands. It's right here. It's in that moment. It's sitting in his lap. God's saying, you don't need anything else to accomplish the will that I have for you today. You know, we would expect God to be like, okay, Gideon, I'm going to call you to save the Israelites, so I'm going to need you to take a six-week combat training and then some leadership seminars and then learn some people skills, and we'll be good to go to lead these people out of the Midianite oppression. But he doesn't. God says, everything you need to accomplish what I've called you to do is sitting right here in your lap if you could begin to use it in the extraordinary ways that I've called you to use it. I think oftentimes we feel like the call of God that he places upon us is an extra thing to add to the list, right? It's not something we can do at any given moment, but it's one of those 6,000 things that we have to get done on a daily basis. And Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a pastor, a theologian, author, she talks about this tension between the call of God being uh, something that we can do with what's already in our hands and this feeling that it requires something additional of us. And she talks about it this way. Affirming the ministry of every baptized Christian is not an idea that appeals to many. Oh, that appeals to many people these days. It sounds like more work, and most of them have all the work they can do. I will never forget the woman who listened to my speech on the ministry of the laity as God's best hope for the world and said, I'm sorry, but I don't want to be that important. Like many of those who sit beside her at church, she hears the invitation to ministry as an invitation to do more to lead the every member survey or cook supper for the homeless or teach vacation church school, or she hears the invitation to ministry as an invitation to be more, to be more generous, more loving, more religious. No one has ever introduced to her the idea that her ministry might involve being just who she already is and doing just what she already does with one difference, namely that she understand herself to be God's person in and for the world. The ability to accomplish God's call is already sitting in your hands. God sees you as strong and capable of accomplishing it. But notice, that's not enough for Gideon, just as it's not enough for us. Gideon replies in verse 15, But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. It means the smallest. It's the same word used to talk about what the Midianites did to make the Israelites small. Gideon has begun to believe the identity of his oppression. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. This is the most common tale in Scripture. 
God calls human beings. Human beings respond by saying, God, I'm too weak to do it. And then God calls them anyway. There's never a story where God calls them and the human beings respond like, I'm too weak to do it. And God's like, you know what? You're probably right. I'm going to go find somebody else. And there's never a story either where God calls someone and they're like, God, I've been waiting on your call because I'm good at so many things. And I just, I just know that whatever you call me to do, I'm going to be excellent at it. That never happens in Scripture either. God's always like, I want the clumsy guy that doesn't know how to interact with people. I want that one to lead my people. God always calls the weak ones. And we human beings, we think that once we play the weakness card, that's the trump card, right? God, I'm too weak. And God's like, you're right. But that never happens. In fact, it's God's trump card toward us. God is waiting on us to acknowledge our weakness before him. Because the second that we acknowledge how weak that we are, God says, I've got him. Because I know that now they have to be dependent upon me to accomplish my will in the world. Weakness is not a liability. It's an asset in being used of God. Because if we're strong on our own accord, we'll think we've done it ourselves. Paul talks about it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 12, I think it is. Paul's beginning to boast a little bit about all the great revelations he's had of heaven and all these other places. And he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me, Paul's very humble, (laughs) there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. The word in Greek means to take up residence. It means that God builds a home in our weaknesses. God doesn't build a home in our strengths. God builds a home in the weakest places of who we are, as long as we're boasting in them. Paul says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness isn't something to be ashamed of, but something to be embraced, because those are the places where God is calling us to be dependent upon Him to affect amazing things, even today. I could summarize that point this way. Believing God is more about seeing extraordinary potential in our ordinary hands than waiting for divine fireworks. Like our Savior, we wear our weaknesses proudly, knowing that our lack makes ample room for God's glorious intervention. Are you wearing your weakness proudly? You know, one of Gideon's greatest weaknesses was that he never could quite convince himself that God had really called him to deliver the Israelites. So I think no less than four occasions, Gideon asks for a sign from God that God will really accomplish what he, what he would do. And every time that Gideon asks for a sign, and they're crazy, you need to read the story of Gideon, everything from a fleece to an offering being burnt up, it's all kind of cool stuff. But every time he asks for a sign, God is patient with him and right there saying, okay, I'll give you a sign. I'll prove to you that I'm with you. Every single time, which shows me that belief is not necessarily about me making some kind of one decision today that will never be changed, but is instead about opening myself up to an ongoing dialogue with God. Belief is simply saying, God, I'm willing to listen to you on a daily basis, even in the midst of my doubts. And every time that we stumble, every time that we go, God, did you really call me? God is right there to give us a sign to show us, yes, I've called you to do extraordinary things with the ordinary things that are in your hands. The band can come. You know, there's a story that kind of captures this call. This call 
And hear me, this call that God has placed upon you is not something for five years from now. It's not something for 10 years from now. God has things for you to do today that are too urgent to overlook. There are things that you can do with your hands in this moment that no matter what these hands are doing, whether they're changing a diaper or fixing a car or balancing a corporate account, that they are used of God to transform the world, to believe that uh, wonderful things can happen through them. There's a story that kind of picks this up uh, quite nicely. It's a story that Tony Campolo shares. It's a sociologist, Christian theologian, about a, a, name, a, a teacher by the name of Miss Thompson. She was a fifth grade teacher, and she had a student whose name was Teddy Stallard. And every day on the first day of school, uh, Miss Thompson would approach her class and she would say, boys and girls, I love you all the same. I don't love you. I don't love any one of you more than the others, which every teacher knows is completely garbage. It's not true. <laughs> Teachers always have their favorites. Um, but one of her least favorites in the class was Teddy. Nick, can you come? Uh, one of the least favorite was Teddy. Teddy was... Um, a troublesome child. He was one that was constantly uh, acting up in class. He was one who was kind of unkempt, who um, didn't necessarily listen to directions. He would give very short answers. Um, and so he frustrated Miss Thompson. And Miss Thompson, um, she kind of began to delight in failing him, you know. Um, she wouldn't fail him unfairly, but when he did fail, she kind of found herself smirking about it because he was so frustrating to deal with in class. And she decided one day to look in his record in the front office and found that teachers had made notes about how great of a student he was in first and second grade, but that as his mom became ill, which she learned, he began to become distant, began to become frustrated, began to become withdrawn. And by the time he had reached fifth grade, he was completely checked out and falling behind in all of his core areas. And so she began to have a little bit of a heartbreak for Teddy. And then there came this moment during Christmas time when all the kids brought their gifts to Miss Thompson the kids brought all these beautifully wrapped gifts, but she found one that was wrapped in just brown paper with kind of held together barely by the tape from Teddy. And she opened it up and out fell this rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a nearly empty bottle of perfume, very cheap perfume. And the students kind of laughed at it because it was goofy looking, not a great gift. But Miss Thompson, being the good teacher that she was, she put the bracelet on her wrist and talked about how beautiful it was. And she sprayed the perfume on her wrist and showed how wonderful it smelled. And they all agreed and they went about with their day. By the end of the class, after everyone had left, Teddy approached Miss Thompson and he said, Miss Thompson, you smelled like my mommy all day today. He said, that bracelet is beautiful on you. I'm so glad that you like it. It belonged to my mother. And so immediately after Teddy walked out, she just buried her face in her hands and began to weep. She had missed this broken soul that was sitting right in front of her every day. And so she resolved that night, I'm going to be a different teacher. I'm going to act differently. And so she invested in him. She took extra time to tutor him after school. She took extra time to help him during class. She did everything he could to help him succeed. And by the end of the year, he had caught up in all of his core areas and was excelling in school. She didn't hear from him for, uh, for many years, but one day out of the blue, she received a note in the mail that said, Dear Miss Thompson, I'm graduating from high school. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy. There was no address, but four years later, there was another note. It read, Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm second in my class. The university hasn't been easy, but I really liked it. Love, Teddy. And four years later, there was one more note. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stallard, M.D. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. 
I'm going to be married the 27th of July. I want you to come and I want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have now. My dad died last year. Love, Teddy. And she went. She sat where Teddy's mother would have sat because she deserved to be there. She was a teacher who had done something great for the kingdom of God, and she deserved her reward. God is approaching you today, and he's asking you to tap into the broken places of your soul and of the world around you that you might become an answer to your own and to, the, to, prayer, to your own prayers and to the prayers of the world around you. God isn't asking you to do anything else but to take what is already in your hands with his help and with his presence and to transform the world today. God is calling you to extraordinary things with just the simple things that you have already sitting in your lap. Let's pray together. God, we are like Gideon in this moment. We are so trampled by the problems that we're facing. We've resigned ourselves to all kinds of issues that we face. God, may we hear your voice speaking us into new places. May we hear your voice speaking hope into those places. God, may we be reminded, God, that this isn't the life that you've called us to live, but may we heed your voice this morning. God, we need your eyes. We often see ourselves as so feeble and so weak. We don't see ourselves as you see us, the strong ones that you've called. So God, allow us to live into that strength today. Transform whatever offering we have in our hands. We pry open our hands and offer them to you and say, take this. May we be people who live into your spectacular call, not just in the future, but even today. And we look forward to all that you will do in your kingdom as we recreate the world together. Thank you for considering us worthy enough to enlist us in your work. God, we embrace our weaknesses before you and ask you to move through them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.